Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... It's not just a few left-behind people that are, the, the country is failing here. You know, it's a majority. <laughs> and, and the political and economic and health ramifications of that are just horrendous. Ann Case and Angus Deaton on the fault lines in the U.S. economy. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I just want to note that in this episode, we do speak about the topics of despair and suicide. So if these are things that you struggle with, this might be an episode to skip. I also want to share with you the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 800-273-8255. It is free and confidential. Today's guests are Ann Case and Angus Deaton, and these are two of my favorite economists to speak with because their work has been so groundbreaking. So I want to give a brief survey of it here. Ann and Angus are the authors most recently of a book called Deaths of Despair, which is a phrase that refers to the combination of deaths that result from three causes, suicides, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related deaths. And that's been the subject of Anne and Angus's research for about the past decade. And what they found is that an epidemic of these kinds of deaths started happening roughly a couple of decades ago, and that the increase in these deaths was entirely concentrated in people without college degrees. And they've also looked at how other gaps between college and non-college folks have also become bigger and bigger in the last 50 years for things like jobs and salaries and health and family and quality of life. And they've also looked at how that societal division, that cleavage between college and non-college adults, also interacts in important ways with other societal divisions like racial and ethnic inequality and geographic inequality. And crucially, how those interactions between all these different trends can change over time. Or as Anne says in today's chat, the battlefield for understanding these trends is dynamic. So Anne and Angus explain all this in our conversation, but I actually want to give two specific examples now because this is so important, I think. So here's the first example. The rise in these deaths of despair initially was concentrated in middle-aged white people. But since roughly the middle of last decade, these deaths of despair have also now started sharply climbing for black people as well. And for both white and black people, the rise has again been concentrated entirely in folks without college degrees. This is all a more recent finding, and it shows that it's really important to keep up with the latest data. The second example is from their book, where Anne and Angus compare these deaths of despair with an earlier epidemic of deaths that fell mainly on African-Americans in the 1970s and 1980s, largely the result of a combination of drugs, violence, and HIV and AIDS. And that earlier epidemic was made worse by the assumptions of policymakers and of pundits and the media who often blamed that epidemic of deaths on culture or on a lack of virtue in the African-American population. Those assumptions were totally incorrect and racist and also, frankly, preposterous. Anne and Angus argue that the likely explanation, the explanation that applies to both epidemics of death, is rooted in how the economy has stopped working for the people who are already the least privileged in society, whether because of race or education or some combination of both. We talk about all that, and we also talk about their new study, which shows just how COVID has affected mortality rates for people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, and also for people without college degrees versus people with college degrees, which they also, by the way, further break down by race and ethnicity, gender, and age. A quick word about language before we start the chat. In the paper that we discuss, Anne and Angus use the demographic labels Hispanic, non-Hispanic blacks, non-Hispanic whites, non-Hispanic Asians, and so on to reflect how people are identified in the data they used. But for today's chat, I asked them if they wouldn't mind just saying 
whites, blacks, etc., and leave out the non-Hispanic part every time just to make it a little bit easier on the ears. But you should know that that is what they mean. And the same applies to the category of non-Hispanic American Indian and Alaskan Native, which we have just shortened to Indigenous Americans. So enough throat clearing from me. Let's get right to the chat with Ann Case and Angus Deaton. Here it is. Anne Case and Angus Deaton, welcome to the New Bazaar. It's so great to see you. Thanks so much, Cardiff. Great to be with you. We're very pleased to be here. So here's where I want to begin. If in 1992 you were a 25-year-old with a college degree, then from that point on, you could expect to live an additional 2.6 years longer than a 25-year-old with no college degree. So there's a gap in expected life expectancy at age 25. And, you know, intuitively, I think a lot of people may not be surprised by this. You know, you would expect there to be some gap because logically it's easy to reason that, you know, if you have a college degree, you might make more money over your lifetime and then you can afford better health care or you can afford the things that, lead to a healthier lifestyle, you know, things that could be expensive, healthier food, gym memberships, that kind of thing. So that might not be super surprising. What might actually surprise some people is what happened to that gap in the time since. So, Anne, why don't you start us off? What happened to that gap in life expectancy between people with college degrees and people without college degrees in the time since the early 90s? Since the early 90s, that gap has grown enormously to the point where in 2019, it was about six and a half years. So what happened? Well, for people with a college degree, their their adult life expectancy continued to rise. Whereas for people without a BA, it grew at a slower rate. And after about 2010, for almost a decade, adult life expectancy fell which hastened the time it took for that gap to reach this enormous difference. Uh, Six and a half years is huge. Yeah, and it's not just that the gap has grown enormously, but as you mentioned, the fact that for people without a college degree, life expectancy actually started falling at one point. And Angus, I mean, this is kind of a, or it should, it seems to me, be a shocking statistic because, you know, over the last couple of hundred years, I think we've kind of come to expect that over time, people live longer and longer as we get the benefits of a growing economy, new medical innovations, those kinds of things. Uh, How big of a deal is it that actually there is this dividing line between people with a college degree and people without it to the point where like people without a college degree actually had their life expectancy start to fall? It's really a huge deal, Cardiff. And um, some people think life expectancy is sort of a measure of how well a society is doing. And, you know, what you just said about we've seen 100 years, maybe 200 years of at least intermittent progress on this. And so for that to reverse for anyone, for any large group, is a really awful indication that something really bad has gone wrong. You know, the, the people with the BA... They're sort of pretty much as it was. The bad things are what happened to the people without a BA for whom the economy has really stopped functioning. One thing that's very important to note here is people with a BA of these people over 25 are only about a third of the population. And whereas the people without a BA are two-thirds of the population. And so it's not just a few left behind people that are, the country is failing here, you know, it's a majority. <laughs> and and the political and economic and health ramifications of that are just horrendous. Yeah. And to put some numbers on this, I was, I was eyeballing this chart that you included in your recent paper um, so that it looks like by 2019, if you are 25 and you have a college degree, you can expect to live to 84 without a degree you'll roughly live to 78. But of course, that's an aggregate, That's or that's an average. And so for some people, it's going to be many, many years longer. For some, you know, the, the gap may not be as big, but that is the fact that that has grown 
from less than three years to more than six years now is astonishing. And in your paper, I know that you also broke this down by race and ethnicity, this this growing gap. Uh, what did you find there? So it, it's interesting that for a large period of time, the gap between black life expectancy and white life expectancy closed. There has always been a gap between the two. But black Americans made enormous progress in closing that gap until about 2010, after fentanyl hit the streets, what we saw was that for blacks without a college degree, like whites without a college degree, life expectancy began to turn down again. But interestingly, what we find is that for blacks and whites with a BA, their life expectancies are converging. And for blacks and whites without a college degree, their life expectancies are converging. So race is, in relative terms, becoming less important than education in looking at how long someone at age 25 could expect to live. Yeah, and and there's an important distinction that you make there about absolute versus relative importance. And also, I want to stop for a second to explain something that I think can be a little bit tricky, and that's the difference between levels versus changes in the levels over time, because this is an easy thing for people to get confused. I had a feeling this would come up. So I actually brought a quote from your book, Deaths of Despair, that I think does a good job of contextualizing this. And in the book, what you're doing is you're looking at this picture, at this chart that shows the trend line for black mortality rates. So the mortality rate is is roughly the risk of dying each year. In this case, if you're black and middle-aged. And then this same picture also has another trend line that shows what's happening for middle-aged white people. And then here's what you write. Quote, Black mortality rates are higher than white mortality rates throughout this picture. Blacks are doing worse than whites. By contrast, mortality rates have fallen faster than white mortality rates. But more fundamentally, it is the probability of dying that matters to people, not its rate of change. And in this, white privilege remains, unquote. So basically what's happening here is that black mortality rates historically have been incredibly high, and they are still, by the way, really high, and they've been falling faster than white mortality rates. So the gap is shrinking. It is smaller, Angus, but it has definitely not closed race still matters immensely for mortality rates. That's absolutely right, because even though the rate of change has been better for blacks than for whites, the levels, as in all of American history, are worse for blacks than whites. But what Ann just said a minute ago about education is, you know, another really important and very difficult and controversial debate, which is the role of class versus race. And the prevailing orthodoxy is that race always trumps class in America. I think that's still true and that the rates are still much worse. Mortality rates are much higher for blacks than whites. But class is becoming more important. So in terms of this metric, which is life expectancy at 25, sometimes called adult life expectancy, the blacks and whites with a BA are much more similar to one another than are blacks with a BA versus blacks without a BA. And that was not true as recently as 92. So, you know, we're not talking about some comparison with something in the 19th century or something. I mean, this is something that's happened very fast. I, I just I just wanted to add that I tell my students the battlefield is a dynamic place. And what's happened is that we're in the middle of a period of exceptional change. So that while uh, black mortality fell terrifically in the 1990s and in the early 2000s while white white mortality was rising. Unfortunately, that has changed. About the time that we published our first paper on deaths of despair, that was the last year in which mortality for blacks from a drug overdose and from alcoholic liver disease and from suicide were still falling. Unfortunately, After that point, 
all three causes of death for African Americans have been rising. So we like people to keep up to date with what we're writing because what we said in about data we had you know, available to us when we wrote in 2015 is different from the data we have available to us now. And we're continuing to try to tell the story as it unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to also note that in your recent papers, you don't just break it down by black versus white mortality rates. You also look at Hispanic, you look at the mortality rates for indigenous Americans and for Asian Americans. And so I want to I wanna just ask, does that gap also hold for all of these other races and ethnicities that you looked at? Pre-COVID, it was the case that Hispanics have lower mortality rates than whites. This leads a lot of people who think about these issues to wonder why, given that Hispanics on average have less education, they have less income, they face overt and covert discrimination in a way that whites don't. But at the same time, their mortality rates have historically been lower and life expectancy higher than is true for whites. So in the literature, it's known as the Hispanic paradox, which is that for reasons that you can come up with some stories about why that might be the case, but it's not fully understood why that's true. For indigenous people, their mortality rates are higher than whites. Deaths from all sorts of conditions, including deaths of despair, are higher for indigenous people. And so that there's a real challenge there. But given that indigenous people are a fairly small population, it's sometimes hard to say something about them without very large standard errors around that. Because the sample size is small for statistical studies, right? Yeah. Also, when you're talking about life expectancy for people with a BA for what is already a small group, <laughs> you get down to some quite small numbers. So we've tended, I don't think we've ever published numbers on life expectancy by education for indigenous Americans, for instance, oh, okay. or even for Asians. But the one thing that's interesting here that you, it's worth keeping in mind is, you know, we think of whites as doing so much better than blacks, but when you bring in Hispanics or you bring in Asians, right, whites are actually near the bottom. I mean, whites do better than blacks, but Asians do much better than Hispanics, and Hispanics do much better than whites, or have done. Everything has changed in the pandemic. Yeah, Angus, I, I also just want to be clear for a second that we are still talking here about life expectancy and mortality rates and not about economic kinds of inequality. So on things like wages and unemployment, uh, those metrics for Hispanics are still worse than for white people. And I just wanted to be clear about that because I actually do want to stay for a second on the discussion of mortality rates. And specifically, I want to talk about what you found when you broke down the difference in mortality rates by college versus non-college folks. Did you find a growing gap in mortality rates between them uh, for all of those races and ethnicities that you looked at? So across races and ethnicities. So if you look at people, say, age 25 to 64, and you look at the their mortality rates, back in about 2000, uh, the mortality rates for people without a BA were at least twice the mortality rates for people with a BA. And that's true for all of these racial and ethnic groups. And what happened was that after about 2010, that ratio grew for all of these groups. So that now for non-Hispanic whites, it's about three and a half times the mortality uh, people without a BA to people with a BA. But for all of these groups, it's grown. And can you explain that that ratio? Do you have in a, is it that in a given year, you're three and a half times more likely to die without a BA, without a college degree, than if you do have one? Because that's, I mean, when people hear it in those terms, it's quite shocking. Yeah. Is that is that the right way to describe it? That is the right way to describe it. And it's grown for all of these groups. So partly because of the reasons that we write about in our book, that part of it is because of deaths of despair, that the the drug epidemic 
but also deaths from alcohol and suicide are just much higher for people without a BA, and that has gotten worse over time since 2000. So, I mean, clearly there is there is established in all this data you've collected a really stark division, a societal division between people with college degrees and people without college degrees. And I want to get into a little bit of the context behind what might be contributing to this division. And I want to just start first with uh, with something about the labor market. So I, I've pulled some data from your book, Deaths of Despair, some data that you cite. And here's the, here's the first bit of data, which uh, I hadn't realized and which is also quite stunning. Here's what you write, and I'm quoting. Since the end of the Great Recession between January 2010 and January 2019, nearly 16 million new jobs were created. Fewer than 3 million of those jobs were for those without a four-year degree, unquote. So just to put this into context, about 81%, more than four out of every five of the new jobs created went to people with college degrees, which, as you pointed out earlier, that is the minority of adults in the country, which kind of just shows that, you know, clearly something is working terribly for people without college degrees when all the new jobs created, I mean, 80% of them are not available to them. That is shocking. And I'm kind of curious to know how we're even meant to process uh, a statistic like that, Uh, Anne. Yeah, we want to combine that also with the fact that the employment to population ratio, which is the number of people who are working relative to the size of the population, has been falling for um, men without a college degree since at least 1990. So men come into the labor force when there's a boom, they leave the labor force when there's a bust, but the trend has been downward. So part of this idea that four out of five jobs that were created went to people with a college degree comes from the fact that many people without a college degree have just left the labor force altogether. And that is a serious problem. The other part of this is that a lot of jobs that used to be available to people without a college degree, now a barrier has been put in place that you must have a college degree to apply for those jobs. So there used to be these middle-level jobs, clerical work or white-collar work, but kind of mid-level jobs that have disappeared. And when asked about this, some of the employers will say, look, in the old days, I would put an ad in the newspaper. People would apply for it, but it was a manageable number. Now, given that it's happening online, there might be 10,000 people applying for this job, and I can't manage that. So I put into place this barrier that you have to have a college degree to apply for the job. So both because wages have, have been very low for people without a BA, and they've left the labor force, combined with this new set of barriers that are being put in place for people without a BA, those things, I think, collectively are responsible for the number that you cite. I think firms used to have a range of workers, you know, because you had the CEO and you had the elevator operator and you had the famous mailroom, which no longer exists. I guess there are no email rooms, but um, there, there, there was a range of occupation. And now firms have sort of separated into the sort of high-tech firms where everybody is a BA, and they've shed all those jobs into supply industries, which hire people without a BA, and they're not very good jobs, and the number of them are going down. So I think a lot of what we've seen is just the expansion of the high-tech economy, and it's hiring these people with BAs. And the point that Anne raised, which I think is a very important one, is one way out of this mess is, do we really need a BA for a lot of these jobs? I think the answer is probably not. And you get examples like, I think Merck said that they were no longer automatically going to apply a BA filter 
And I think that would be a really, really good thing. You know, we all have bunches of skills. And this BA versus non-BA is a sort of binary division that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And the American educational system is training everybody to go to college and only a third of them go and not imparting these useful skills or in many cases not imparting useful skills to the two-thirds who don't get a degree. So we need to rebalance that. I mean, it would be good if everybody had a BA or everybody that wanted to have a BA had a BA, but I don't think that's the ideal world that we should be heading towards. Yeah, and let me add this other uh, this other point because you mentioned wages. Well, you cite this other statistic, which is that the college wage premium, so this is effectively the difference between what people who have college degrees get paid versus what people who don't have college degrees get paid, it went from about 40 percent to 80 percent since 1980, which means that the added premium that you get from having a college degree doubled. So now if you don't have a college degree, you're looking at a situation where you're less likely to get a job in the first place. If you do get a job, the gap between what you make and what people with degrees make is increasing. And on top of that, you cite some statistics from outside of just the confines of the labor market itself, and and you get into sort of quality of life. So, for example, and here's another quote, you write, the widening gap between those with and without a bachelor's degree is not only in death, but also in quality of life. Those without a degree are seeing increases in their levels of pain, ill health, serious mental distress, and... There are declines in their ability to work and socialize. The gap is widening in earnings, in family stability, and in community. So I just want to sum up everything we've just discussed for a second and then get your thoughts on it. If you don't have a college degree, you are more likely to die, more likely to be in a lot of pain, more likely not to be able to find work. And the gap in pay between you and somebody who has a college degree when you do find work is a lot bigger than it used to be. There is a very deep story here, and to me, it suggests that the economic damage has kind of infiltrated all these other facets of life. This is not just a story of relative material deprivation. It is affecting a lot of other things. Uh, And how should we characterize this uh, kind of astonishing phenomenon of the last few decades? It's it's really stunning. I want to I want to go back to one thing you said though, which is that people with a without a BA can find work, but it's lousy work. It's work without benefits. It's work without a ladder up. It's work without on-the-job training. It's work that's not going to go anywhere. And that becomes, we think, the center for them not to be able people not to be able to get married. Our friends in sociology were telling us for years in their surveys, you know, people aren't getting married because they don't think they can get married until one of them has a good job. And we thought, oh, that's interesting. But we didn't really think it had anything to do with our work until we started this work. And we realized it's incredibly important because marriage rates for people without a BA have fallen quite dramatically since 1980. And so life at home isn't stable. People cohabit, but those cohabitations are fragile. So, and they will have children, what Andy Cherlin, who's a good sociologist, calls shotgun cohabitation, where it used to be shotgun weddings, but they don't last. So women are raising children. They split from the father of the child. They may recouple. But they will cycle through a lot of unstable relationships. So home life is unstable. Work life isn't meaningful in the way it used to be. People stop engaging in civic activities. They stop going to church. And whatever people think about religion or organized religion, it was an incredibly important institution in the U.S. from the get-go. It was a place people could go, they could find solace, they could find help. All of those pillars of life that helped people keep body and soul together have crumbled for this group. And we, we trace a lot of it back to the labor market 
that these people face. Uh, one thing that Anne hasn't mentioned yet is unions, which were another part of the story. So unions were really important. And there's many years of good work in labor economics showing that union members get paid more. And not only that, but unions raised wages for some non-union members too. They also were politically very important in that they represented workers on the job. They're very important in monitoring safety conditions at work. They were also important in representing people locally and nationally too. They're very powerful in Washington. Now, the, the sort of total amount of lobbying on behalf of unions is swamped by one or two large firms like Alphabet for instance. So the, there's been a huge change of power. Even, you know, the famous image of the Bob Putnam had of the man bowling alone. He was bowling alone in a union hall. And that union hall does not exist anymore. So there, I think the number is something like only about 6% of private sector workers are unionized nowadays, compared with about a third or a half of them in the 50s. So the, that's been a big decline that's very consequential for people. And I think it's very important for political representation and I think we've come to think in our recent work of that being even, even more important, that this class of people, these working class people without a BA, have no political representation. And, you know, the Democrats didn't do very well by them. You know, the Democrats were in charge when all these jobs went away, when their lives were crumbling. And the Republicans are beholden to, you know, large financial interests, and it's not clear where they have a home. And can I, I want to go back, Angus mentioned what happened during Democratic administrations. If you go back to the time that the North American Free Trade Agreement was signed. That was 1994-95, right around there for context. Uh, yes. And and it was the case that the that the economists who were working in the administration understood that jobs would be lost in the U.S., but they thought it was a really good opportunity for the U.S. to upskill. That yes, these jobs will be lost, but we'll actually reskill these people for better jobs, and it will be a chance for us to get better jobs for more people. Well, the agreement passed, but the upskilling did not take place. So it just left people entirely on their own in the lurch. And it was kind of that, oh, well, your job went away, but this is America, you're on your own. And when, when China was brought into the World Trade Organization, um, there are these speeches by Bill Clinton saying, it's going to make China rich, it's going to make America rich, it's good for everybody. You know, this brave new world that for a lot of Americans never came to pass. All of that said, we think that automation is more important than globalization in terms of good jobs going away for people without a bachelor's degree. Um, but certainly, politically, people and people's lives were not given fair weight when these agreements were passed. Yeah, you describe in the book that the trends of the last roughly five decades in which the labor market has really left behind lesser educated folks, people without college degrees, that it represents the kind of dark side of the U.S. meritocracy, and that trends like globalization, automation can, by the way, have some wonderful benefits for the U.S. economy. And neither of you is arguing that we should do away with innovation that makes the economy more efficient or do away with globalization entirely. Um, you're saying that the costs of these trends have been underappreciated, right? And Absolutely. That people are invisible when these uh, decisions are being made. And we think that it's hard to know if you wanted to replace a meritocracy, who what you would replace it with. But at the same time, there are real costs here. I mean, the word was actually invented by Young in, in the late 50s when he talked about there being two groups of people. There were the meritocrats, who were known as the hypocrisy, and there were the working class people, who were kind of the proletarian or the populists. And he saw that as being a real dystopian world. 
but that's the world that we now live within. And it's a world that actually could burn itself out in two or three generations. Because the first generation of meritocrats, they bubble to the top, they are smart, they do good things, but they worry about their children. So they do everything they can to protect their children and to lift up the ladders behind them so that other people can't come and interfere with the good lives that they're leading. And unfortunately, we see that everywhere now. Yeah, and your your comments also kind of raise another question for me, and it's about your approach to all of this evidence, all of this research as economists, because uh, I find it fascinating because on the one hand, when you do your research papers, of course, you're using the instruments of economics. But at the same time, especially in your book, as you're putting together, you know, all the evidence that's out there, you're also citing a lot of research from sociology. In fact, you cite sociology's founder, Emile Durkheim, and his views on the causes of despair quite often in your book. You're obviously using data from the medical community. You're bringing up political science. And so I'd love to just hear more about how you approach a kind of synthesis of all these different strands of thought when you're putting together your own analysis of these trends from the last few decades. Uh, Angus, you want to you get us started on that? <laughs> I have a go at that. I read a lot of history, too, which you didn't really <laughs> which mention. Which I forgot, yeah. <laughs> and, well, but for me, it's always been very important because I like the way historians tell stories. And, you know, they're not stuck in this causal rabbit hole that economics is trying to go down. And they tried to tell stories which hang together. And, you know, it's not that you can't test those things because all these stories have predictions and you can test the predictions against what actually happened. I don't know whether it made it into the book, but one episode that certainly um, had a big effect on my thinking was what happened to handloom weavers in Britain in the early 19th century. So, you know, you get these people who are being made technologically obsolete by a change in technology, and which supported very, very large numbers of people. There were lots of handloom weavers, and they lived in their cottages, and they did piecework, and they made a good living during that. And there was a society structured around that, a largely a rural society in which there was food and the customs and churches and all the rest of it. And then as those people were replaced, it took 50 years for real wages to recover so that real wages were stagnant. My friend Bob Allen, the economic historian, likes to say that wages only started rising on the day that Marx published Das Kapital. Uh, and so there's this long pause, which is sometimes literature called Engels' pause, where working class standards just were stagnant. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about in the book happened during that period, too. People moved to cities. There were no churches in Manchester, for instance. There were no public toilets in Manchester. There were no country stockpot. There was no stockpot because you weren't in a cottage in the countryside anymore. The, the story that the stockpot was replaced by the teapot. And people consume sugar instead of meat stock and so on. So there's this whole destruction of a way of life which comes from automation. So I, what we would hope is that policymakers can do a little better in 2020 than they could do in 1800, for instance. It's not clear that that's true, but it's at least a hope. It's also the case, though, that we've both grown up in a profession, this kind of thinks of itself as having manifest destiny, that economics will take over everything because the logic of our arguments is so strong and our models are so well-crafted. And I think that to the extent that the economists put on ever larger blinkers and have stopped looking at what's going on in sociology and in political science, it's to our detriment. I think it makes economics or the kind of economics that we, we think about less and less relevant if we don't reach out and read across disciplines. There's a big joke that economists don't read. Unfortunately, it's mostly <laughs> true. <laughs> and they certainly don't read outside of their own discipline on average. That's all on average. But I think that um, we were so happy that in the book we had the chance and the space 
to really try to flesh these things out. And also talk to Bob Putnam and talk to Andy Sherlin and talk to the sociologists and talk to the medical doctors and be able to convene small conferences on, for example, pain or on opioids and bring in real specialists from other areas. That's That just keeps us on our toes and it keeps us, it, it's just a much better way forward, we think. They, they must have been shocked. Oh my God, the economists are calling us. What's happening? <laughs> well, except, you know, we, we have a very good friend who Anne hasn't mentioned so far, Sarah McClanahan, who's a sociologist recently emeritus from here. And she'd worked on this fragile families thing for a really long time and these sort of multiple cohabitations. And I think that struck us both. I mean, we're not is it, it, is a predicament of, you know, a man who gets to his 50s, you know, when your youthful exuberance and love of freedom has worn off and you're looking to family stability and knowing your kids and having a long history together. And that's gone for so many of these people. And I think for both of us trying to imagine what our life would be like without that, um, no wonder people are having deaths of despair. But also Durkheim, that certainly endeared us to all the sociologists <laughs> because they regard Durkheim as a god. And, you know, Durkheim is just the guiding spirit for this whole book. The material conditions of production are, are deteriorating in a way that takes away the fundamental structure of people's lives. And it affects their religion and it affects their home life and all the rest of it. Interestingly, though, so when we thought about suicide, Durkheim is still the guy to go to. So, you know, the times of great upheaval are times when one should expect to see more suicide. But Durkheim posited that it should be something that is more likely to happen to people with education, because those are people who would be less trapped, trapped in quotes, by uh, religious mores. Those are people who would have left the, the home community, the bosom of close friends, to try their luck in the big city. Well, if that was ever true, that's certainly not true now. That suicide rates, both in levels and the increase, is just much more dramatic for people without a bachelor's degree. Yeah. So, but we still, he is, he was our guiding light. Well, we've established, I think, these big trends that were taking place in the decades leading into COVID. I'd love now to talk about your recent paper and your findings on what's happened since COVID started. And specifically, what you studied was what happened in the year 2020 versus what happened in the year 2019. So going into COVID, and why don't you start us out? Because the paper says that there are good reasons to have expected for people without college degrees to have their risk of dying go up way disproportionately to the risk of dying going up for people with college degrees. Take us through what some of those reasons were for why we should have expected those rates of dying to go up more uh, for people without college degrees. Oh, absolutely. People with a college degree were twice as likely to be able to telework after the crisis hit. They were half as likely to have a public-facing job. People with a BA are less likely to have to take public transport. People with a BA are living in less crowded housing. And also people with a BA, according to a Pew survey, are more likely to have been compliant with public health recommendations in terms of mask wearing and in terms of social distancing. So we think that jobs that were not necessarily inherently risky prior to the pandemic, being a checkout person in our local grocery store, being a bus driver, being an orderly in a hospital, those jobs had this new risk associated with the job. And we thought that, you know, given that the risk changed, that we should see what we were talking about earlier, that the mortality gap between people with and without a BA would widen even further. And it did. So that, you know, if you look at the increase in deaths, um, people with a BA had way fewer increase in deaths 
than people without a BA, and that's true within all these ethnicity and racial groups that we talked about earlier, too. Yeah. On the point of the racial and ethnic breakdown here, I also want to emphasize that you write that because of racial segregation, people of color are likely to live closer to lower quality hospitals, which would suggest they're going to get a lower standard of health care, you know, during a time when the quality of your health care matters enormously. You know, it's, it's really quite intensified, too. And I, I take it that that point is also important to make because overall people of color tend to have lower rates of college degrees than people who are not of color, than, than white people. Yes, that's true. It's not a huge gap for African-Americans. I think it's 25% of adults have a college degree as opposed to 35%, 34% for whites. The For Hispanics, it's quite a bit lower than that. And I think for indigenous Americans, it's lower still. Asians, much higher, especially young Asians. Okay. Yeah. And let's let's first go through the finding on the absolute increase in mortality rates. What did you find there, uh, Anne? So the, what we found, which other people have found as well, is that a, a marked increase in mortality rates for people of color. That the increases were largest for indigenous people, for Hispanics and for black Americans. And they were lowest for whites and for Asian Americans. With there being a a large uh, difference for each one of these groups looked at separately for those with and without a bachelor's degree. So both of those things just jump out from the data before we start looking at how these changes in mortality compare to what their mortality rates were like before uh, the pandemic hit. Okay. And now I want to turn to your findings on how having a college degree either helped or didn't help in terms of mortality rates in the pandemic. So in terms of dying in the pandemic, this is complicated also because the concept of relative risk ratios is itself complicated. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take one of the specific findings in your study, and I'm going to explain it, and then we'll try to use that as a way of explaining the overall concept and why it's important. So here we go. You broke down the population not just by college versus non-college people, but also by gender, by race and ethnicity, and by age. And so, for example, let's look at what happened to black men between the ages of 25 and 39. Well, in 2019, the year before the pandemic, the men in that category who did not have a college degree, they were four and a half times more likely to die than the men in that category who did have a college degree. Okay, and then in 2020, the year of the pandemic, well, once again, the men in that category with no college degree were exactly four and a half times more likely to die as the ones with a college degree. So the ratio did not change. And in fact, uh, across the whole population, there were like there were like 60 of these categories when you divide it by race, by age, and so forth. Well, across the whole population, that ratio between folks without a college degree and their risk of dying versus folks with a college degree basically stayed the same. That relative risk ratio stayed the same. And this is surprising because... COVID, for all the reasons we just gave, was thought to represent a disproportionately big new risk for people without college degrees. So you would expect that ratio to go up, but it did not go up. First of all, is that basically a correct explanation for what you found, Angus? Yes. You you want to be a co-author on this paper, Carter? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's exactly right. And those I think those numbers are pretty stunning. Like we so now we're trying to puzzle why is that the case? When the we know that they must have faced higher risk. So it must be that the other part of this equation is just more important in terms of the relative risk of death, which is the probability of dying conditional on infection. That must have just helped us to maintain this difference in mortality rates between these groups. Oh, that 
that's interesting too. So just to explain this a bit, what you're saying, Anne, is that the differences in dying between people without college degrees and people with college degrees was perhaps based more on the likelihood that someone would survive after they got infected, and it was less based on the idea that people without college degrees had an increased risk of getting it in the first place. And of course, that conditional probability of dying if you got COVID, well, that maybe could be attributed to the same factors that had already led to non-college people dying more even before the pandemic, like getting worse quality of care and, and that kind of thing. Is, is that right? I think that's right. Uh, for some of the reasons that you said about hospital quality, for instance, medical care quality in these different communities, but also preconditions were very important. You know, being obese, having diabetes, um, having chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, all of these things made you more likely to die of COVID once you caught it. And all of those things have long been higher in minority, less educated communities. Yeah. And you have an interesting discussion in the paper where you offer some possibilities. I want to be clear, you're not saying that these are definitive one way or the other. You're just offering possibilities for discussion where you cite some potential offsetting factors for frontline workers in particular. So on the one hand, for example, you make the point that frontline workers, because they're, they involve more contact with customers, because they involve, you know, actually having to go to work, public transportation. And for people without college degrees in particular, they might live in more kind of crowded conditions at home. And so on the one hand, that would make it seem like there's going to be, you know, an increased risk. And in the point, in the case of the healthcare sector, by the way, you cite this kind of astonishing figure that more than two thirds of healthcare workers who died were people of color. And Low-paid workers who handled the, and I'm quoting, everyday patient care like nurses, support staff, nursing home employees, they were far more likely to die than doctors were. So that's sort of pushing in one direction. In the other direction, and you know, this is actually quite a sad story, frontline workers were also more likely to lose their jobs, which in a way would, and I'm putting this in quote, protect them from the higher risk of exposure to customers and things like that. So this is just a, a sort of horrific story overall because it kind of suggests that people end up in this scenario where either they're going to lose their jobs or they keep their jobs and they have an elevated risk literally of dying. So there, there's no sort of happy sort of spin on this. It's just a horrible set of choices that were faced by these frontline workers. That's exactly right. Um, and what is sort of horrific in a way is you would have thought of a major change in external health conditions like a pandemic, you know, would completely upset these ratios of relative risk. And it sort of didn't. I mean, it's sort of like you're screwed whatever you do. <laughs> you know, you go off to another planet where everything's different and still the BAs are going to do better than not BAs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, um, you know, very disturbing. Um, we don't think that was true historically, incidentally. I mean, it, we don't have much historical data on people with and without BAs. But, you know, the historical work going back into the British records and European records way back into the 17th, 18th century and even before suggests that there were very little differences in life expectancy between, say, aristocrats and ordinary people. So it's not something that's baked in no matter what happens. Yeah. It's not an absolute fundamental. By the way, I feel like it would be negligent on my part if I didn't point out that there were two fairly prominent exceptions to this idea uh, of relative risk of dying for BAs versus non-BAs not changing, which is uh, young Hispanic women and young indigenous women, there's a different story there, uh, right, Anne? Yes. Uh, Hispanics are, are the exception in general to this. Hispanics were, have just been walloped by this pandemic. And earlier we were talking about the Hispanic paradox that Hispanics on average lived longer. But the COVID pandemic has hit them incredibly hard. But the Hispanics with a BA relative to those without a BA have done better than was true for other races. Yeah, the indigenous um, 
We have to be a bit careful about that. That's that's a young group of indigenous Americans with and without a BA. And this is not a sampling problem. We have a complete count of people who died, but the numbers are quite small. So you can imagine if, God save us, COVID came and replicated itself from five years from now, under the same conditions, you might get smaller or larger numbers of people dying. So we don't attach a lot of significance to that number. But what Anne said about Hispanics is dead right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I want to kind of um, point to what you write in the concluding section of this paper. You write, and I'm quoting, Our results here suggest that the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, far from being a break with previous trends, is a continuation of them in a new disease environment with the fundamental inequalities persisting, unquote. And that seems to be the kind of big takeaway. It was certainly what I thought of as I was going through your data, which is that the U.S. economy has all of these persistent, I mean, they're dynamic, but they're also persistent inequities and inequalities, this stark division between people with BAs versus people without BAs. And that division has become more kind of important in the last few decades. And what the pandemic has done is essentially reinforced those trends or maybe confirmed those trends is uh, is a better way of phrasing it, that these inequities, these trends that we saw before have been kind of like the, our observation of them has been kind of magnified by the pandemic and by its kind of horrific effects. Is, is that roughly the right way of interpreting the paper, Anne? I, th- I think in terms of education, yes. But w- what this pandemic has also done, though, has increased the amount of inequality between white and black. Blacks were hit much harder than whites. And Hispanics, who historically have done very well, were harder hit even even than, than the African-American community. So while, while it's been maintaining this education divide, it's actually widened the racial divide. Sure. And we are talking about mortality here. So mortality is not the only structural inequalities that exist in American life. So, you know, one thing, for instance, is the stock market has just gone through the roof. It seems to be a new record every day. Well, whoever heard of a pandemic that's killing, you know, nearly three quarters of a million Americans so far as sending the stock market through the roof? Well, not everybody is in the stock market. And people like us who have pension funds in the market, never mind the billionaires, the already billionaires, that gap has widened enormously. Yeah, I I wanted to actually close by asking a more general question because, you know, the two of you obviously have studied this like diverse range of topics as part of this overall project of deaths of despair, of studying deaths of despair. So, you know, this involves things like studying the education system, the healthcare system, of which the two of you have definitely been especially severe, and I want to have you back on the show at some point just to do uh, a full conversation about that. Um, you know, you've studied inequality trends as well. And in fact, before this project, Angus wrote a whole book on the history of inequality. And as Angus noted there, you know, there's sort of like the economic response and then there's the societal overall response of which the economic response is only one part. But in terms of just everything, I'd love to know your general thoughts on like how the U.S. is doing, how its response to this has fared in your eyes relative to how well maybe it could have done. What are your sort of overall thoughts on on what's happened in the last you know year and a half or so? I could take a whack at it and give Angus the last word. We're not doing well. I think, though, that many countries are not doing well. And certainly, one might have thought that countries that had better public health systems would end up doing better than the U.S. has done. And that has not generally been true. But I think we we stand at a very dangerous point right now in the U.S., where inequality is to the point that it is threatening our democracy. I mean, once it's the case that the court system begins to tilt terribly in one direction, largely because people with money were able to push it in that direction, we're in trouble. And I think that if you look at the courts, if you look at the continued polarization and many people losing faith in democratic institutions, 
that before an election, the lawyers are already lined up to say that the election was stolen, not knowing yet what the results are, we're in trouble. And I'm not sure I see the light ahead yet. Although I like to be an optimistic person, so I'm hoping there will be light. Yeah, I'm I'm not very optimistic either. One thing we haven't talked about, and it would be worth talking about at some point, is is the increasing profit share, for instance. So that, you know, the fact that wages are going down has been matched by this enormous increase in profits and stock market value and so on. So we've got this- Talk about it now, Angus. You've got time. (laughs) I want to hear about (laughs) it. Well, you know, when Anne talked about the courts, I mean, the courts have become much more tolerant of antitrust, what would have been antitrust violations. And, you know, in a more general sense, uh, there's an enormous amount of power of large corporations who get to do sort of what they want. And- it makes it incredibly hard to reform tax systems, for instance, in a way that would guarantee that the rich pay more. You know, you, you've got this thing, I talked about the, the stock market going through the roof. A lot of that is, of course, because the big tech companies, the four big tech companies are listed here, and they've done incredibly well during the pandemic, largely because of the pandemic. So that you may say, once upon a time, that Jeb Bezos is worth his trillion dollars, a bit less than that, but because he gave us all these wonderful things. But during the pandemic, if his wealth doubled, is that okay too? You know, there's got to be some limit to this. And historically, what has happened during wars, and they're useful parallel here, is that countries raise taxes on the rich while expecting the poor to go to war. So the, the poor paid in blood and the rich paid in treasure. There's no appetite for doing this now not just in the US, but even in Europe. Joe Manchin said that would be divisive. Apparently, Mario Draghi in Italy, when paced with the same thing, said there's no time to tax anyone sort of idea. So that if I can come back to the the original question, Janet Yellen, who we know very well, has been a strong supporter of this work since the first days we started writing it. Christine Lagarde also fussed over us and made a big thing about it. C.C. Rouse, who's the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, was our dean and our boss here for a long time. She knows about this. And so it's not as if the people who are running the country or running the country in heavy quotes here don't know what the problems are. It's just you put people good people in charge who know that you need some serious redistribution towards this the hurting side of the great divide, but they can't get it done. And so we're so so if you can't do this through democracy, the only other way is for it to break. And you finish up in Michael Young's dystopia where there's a war going on between the populace on the one side and the hypocrisy on the other side. And, you know, there never was a better description of American politics than to call it the hypocrisy versus the populace. And, you know, if we don't fix this, it's going to end in tears. It's going to end with pitchforks and bloodshed. Let me let me ask a last question, part B, so to speak. <laughs> a quick postscript, because I, I want to mention something that I think is is relevant here, which is that the fiscal and monetary response to the COVID crisis has been much more aggressive and much more stimulative than it was in the aftermath of the Great Recession, and it has led to a situation where output recovered much more quickly. The labor market still has some ways to go, but it also recovered more quickly. And so I want to just mention that because it seems like we also do have to emphasize the things that have gone right so that we don't forget those lessons also. And so the the sort of overall impression I'm getting from the two of you is that structurally there are some things that are damaged that are not being fixed. But I wonder if we should at least take some hope from the fact that cyclically, we seem to have at least learned some of the lessons from the aftermath of the Great Recession. Uh, Anne and Angus, should we take some hope from that? <laughs> Yes, I I do believe we should. And I actually do believe that the legislation currently in front of the Congress is something that we can take hope from. 
that after decades of talking about an infrastructure bill, we may have a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, which we desperately need, and that even though it's been whittled down, the Build Back Better bill is something that may actually bring resources into areas that are desperately short of resources and may make a difference and in addition, may make a difference to climate change. So I'm in that way, fingers crossed, and I can barely bring myself to peek at what's going on in Washington <laughs> because I, I'm i just really, really hoping that they can get something passed. Yeah, it's true. I mean, but a cynical person would say, you know, when their house is actually burning down, they, light the, they allow the fire engines to go put water on it. But when there's just a smoldering blaze that is going to destroy us all, no fire engines. And the, the worry in some sense is that they'll want the money back that they spent during the pandemic. And so you can already see governments talking about austerity uh, of sort of raising taxes. But at least I mean, the British one, which I was very worried about, um, the budget the other day, um, seems to have protected a lot of the most vulnerable people and raised taxes to pay for it and instead of cutting public services, which is what happened after 2007. That lesson may have been learned, at least in some European countries. So that, that's a positive sign. I do think we learn, you know, central banks behave better now than they used to behave. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is better. And, but think back to the handloom weavers again, you know. What would we have done with a handloom weaver now? And I'm not so sure, my pessimistic side says, I, I'm not sure we would have done much better than what happened to them. Well, I try to cheer you guys up, and, and Angus goes back to the handloom weavers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on them. <laughs> uh, but it, now, in all seriousness, I mean, uh, th this is such incredibly important work, and uh, I just want to say thanks for the work and, and for joining me on the new bazaar. Uh, Anne Case, Angus Deaton, uh, what a pleasure. Oh, it's such a Thank pleasure, you. Cardiff. It's Thank fun. you so much. And that's all the time we have for today. If you go to the show notes for today's episode, there you can find links to Anne and Angus's recent paper, Mortality Rates by College Degree Before and During COVID-19. And we'll also post a link to their book, Deaths of Despair. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. It really is the best way for people to find out about the show, and it guarantees that Amy and I can keep making the show. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>